Hello, this is Jesse Weiler from Autorama's Bulletin. Today I sat down with Father Michael Lang to talk about his most recent article in the Bulletin titled, The Most Joyful and Blessed Ordinance of the Gospel, St. John Henry Newman on the Liturgy. I found this article incredibly fascinating. We don't often hear about St. John Henry Newman's liturgical life or his interest in the liturgical life, but in this article, Father Lang really dissects all of that and he tells us a story about his liturgical interest that we don't always hear. So without further ado, an interview with Father Lang. I'm here with Father Lang, who wrote an article for the Adoramus Bulletin recently titled, The Most Joyful and Blessed Ordinance of the Gospel, St. John Henry Newman on the Liturgy. Father, thank you for joining me today. Well, hello, uh, Jesse. Thank you very much for this kind invitation. I'm very happy to speak about our new saint, uh, uh, John Henry Newman, and the contributions he made to the sacred liturgy. They are not as well known as so many of his other great contributions to theology, development of doctrine, um, education, the nature of religious belief, and so on. But um, he had also a very profound understanding of the liturgy, and I've tried to present that in my article. Absolutely, and I, and I think you start properly with um, this little paragraph that you titled Liturgical Seeds, which I thought was very fantastic. One of the things that I was really drawn to was, in, in a way, how much John Henry Newman was drawn to the liturgical calendar, and how uh, you talk about how he organized some of his preaching not by the, the day it was written, like most people would, but but what in regard to what it had to do with the liturgical calendar. Can you expand a little bit more upon his attraction to the liturgical year? First of all, I think we need to realize that for Newman, this was really a discovery. For us um, Catholics taking part in um, the liturgical life throughout the year, and its seasons, this is something almost of a second nature, you know, the rhythm of Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter and then the time through the year. But for Newman in his time, this was really a discovery. Uh, the liturgical life in the Church of England uh, when he grew up was really at a low point. Uh, enlightenment had a um, strong effect on the worship in the Church of England. Even the Instructions from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer were very rarely followed about uh, daily worship, daily um, office matins, and even song. And um, Newman discovered the structure of the liturgical year largely thanks to another great uh, leader of the Oxford movement, uh, the theologian and poet John Keeble. So John Keeble wrote this work, the, the Christian Year, which introduced a wider Anglican readership to the structure of uh, the liturgical seasons, the annual cycle of celebrating the mysteries of faith. And Newman took that on very enthusiastically. And so uh, a few years after encounter, after um, reading Keeble's work, he would then organize his own preaching very much according to its place in the liturgical year. Can you explain a little more about what the Oxford movement was in detail? The Oxford movement was um, a movement that was founded in uh, so the early decades of the uh, 19th century, and 
these theologians, Newman, um, also Cable, Pusey, tried to uh, really offer an alternative to the very strong current of religious liberalism and rationalism that dominated the Anglican Church at the time. Uh, so the, the main, mainstream Anglicanism at the time was very strongly influenced by rationalist enlightenment thought, and there was kind of uh, liberalism, middle of the road uh, way of doing things that uh, became stronger and stronger. And the sense that uh, also that um, Anglicanism was kind of the religion of the land or that Christianity in its Anglican form, let's put it that way, was the law of the land in England, uh, was more and more on the retreat. And so these um, theologians, and most of them were actually um, at Oxford, hence uh, the name of the movement, um, well, tried to really offer an, an alternative to that, and they wanted to go back to the Anglican theologians, the Anglican divines of the 17th um, century, which they saw still uh, connected with uh, well, the Catholic heritage um, of the Church of England, and also to the Church Fathers. They saw that if they wanted really to offer something alternative to this strong kind of liberalism, they had to build it on a strong foundation, and that was meant to be the early Church, uh, and uh, the, the great figure saints um, of early Christianity. And they appealed to both clergy and laity and started a very powerful um, uh, movement to retrieve that Catholic heritage in the Church of England. And it was, in many ways, very um, successful. Uh, it also changed uh, Anglican worship significantly. So what you see today, you go to, to an average Anglican church, is very much shaped by uh, the ideas of the Oxford movement. Um, everything, the, the, the interior of the church, um, the presence of saints, that was um, not there before uh, the Oxford movement. The, the break with the Reform uh, that happened at the Reformation was really very thorough. Um, and so the uh, Oxford movement tried to, to go back and connect with the well, Catholic heritage um, of Christianity in England. I, I really like this quote that you pulled from him in, in regard to uh, this liturgical poverty that was uh, said to be existent in the Anglican Church at the time. But, you but he says, uh, the, England, the Anglican Church must have a ceremonial, a ritual, and a fullness of doctrine and devotion, which it had not at present, if it were to compete with the Roman Church with any prospect of success. I, I really like that because it kind of shows, like you you titled liturgical seeds. It kind of it shows where his mind and heart is is being aimed. Yes, very much so. And uh, just also remember, at that point, he was very much convinced uh, that the Church of England was um, really the, the the via media, the middle way between the aberrations of Roman Catholicism, which he thought really got quite a lot of things wrong, especially in its um, devotional um, uh, life. And on the other hand, uh, the sort of errors and what he thought was the apostasy, really, of Protestantism. So um, he firmly believed in uh, this via media theory and uh, subscribed to it completely. But he saw that... Um, there was no sort of 
worship, no liturgical life really to express uh, that idea in you know in the daily or weekly um, routine of the faithful, and uh, so he tried to. Um, bring the Church of England to the fullness of its own liturgical tradition, which he thought really was to be found in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. There is a later stage in the Oxford movement, uh, long after Newman became Catholic, when um, many Anglicans tried to introduce elements from the Roman uh, tradition, would use the Roman Missal, um, Roman liturgical books. Newman didn't do that. He thought uh, it was sufficient and uh, really important in the first place to uh, go to the fullness of what the Anglican tradition was actually offering, and which was pretty much forgotten in his own day. That, that was going to be my my next question: was this um, this idea that all, not only the the liturgy itself, but also the the liturgical day in the Liturgy of the Hours was something that he was definitely drawn to as well. I mean, I think you can see the parallel between the liturgical day and the liturgical year, um, that he kind of had this, he was compelled to to move towards that and to explore it more. That's uh, absolutely right. And uh, again, um, in in Newman's day, that had fallen out of, out of use in most places. Uh, so these two services that are actually part of the Anglican Book of prayer, Common Prayer, Matins in the Morning and then Evensong in the late afternoon, were largely ignored. And uh, Newman actually introduced um, first Matins in, in uh, the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford, where he was uh, the vicar. He did that in 1834. And um, then a few years later in um, a church uh, which he actually built in Littlemore, which was then a village near Oxford, now it's sort of part of Oxford. There he um, introduced Evensong. So the sort of sanctification of time, the, the, the daily prayer, um, was something he was very much drawn to. And, and so, you know, taking this a little bit further, obviously there was a conversion at, at some point. Um, but, but you talked towards the end of your article about the fact that he um, was a very intellectual person, but his, his desire to understand these liturgical concepts were emotional. Can you uh, expand upon that a little? Sure. I mean, uh, St. John Henry Newman was an intellectual person, but he also was a very emotional person. That's sometimes uh, forgotten. We know him from his great writings on theology, but uh, his affective side was also uh, very strong. Um, he uh, was... Um, a great uh, great friend to many people. He cultivated many friendships uh, in person or through writing, um, was, was a very uh, diligent letter writer, and um, you can see also warm warmth and um, sort of affectivity in, in, these, in these letters. So, uh, and I think he was emotionally drawn to uh, Catholicism. He tried to stay away from it uh, while he was still convinced in his mind that you know, Anglicanism was the right thing in his reading um, from the perspective of the Oxford movement. So he would, for example, avoid going to Catholic Mass even when he traveled uh, through Italy. He would very rarely uh, go to, to uh, a church to take part in any service uh, such as the Mass. 
largely, I think, because he felt attracted um, to it, but he didn't want uh, the this um, this feeling to take um, hold of him, uh, and so he he thought he first had to work things through in his mind, uh, in, in in his in, in his theology, and once he had done that, he was ready to embrace um, Catholicism fully, more his devotional life. I mean, he wrote, uh, wrote beautiful prayers, he wrote uh, meditations. Um, so um, there is that side to that emotional affective side to, to Newman as well. I'd imagine that whole process and his conversion in full immersion in the Catholic Church sent some ripples in the Anglican Church. But I'm curious as to whether or not you know of any impact that he had maybe bringing some people with him uh, through his teachings and through what he was talking about and through what he experienced, were there other conversions that are that were linked to him in his understanding of the liturgy? Uh, there were certainly many uh, conversions to the Catholic Church, uh, thanks to Newman. There was also a whole group of, of converts um, to the Catholic Church. And in fact, when he entered into uh, this crisis, um, what's often called the crisis of the Via Media, so when he began to doubt uh, the whole Oxford Movement project, he retired to Littlemore near Oxford, and um, there were quite a few friends going with him and establishing a kind of kind of monastic life. So they would live there, pray together. Um, eat together and um, have a form of community life. And some of these friends actually became Catholic before Newman. Many of them actually became Catholic before Newman uh, was received. Uh, Newman was quite hesitant. He really wanted to be um, sure about it. He wanted to have the conviction that this was necessary for his salvation to take this step. Uh, so uh, others actually preceded him, and uh, then after he became Catholics, many others were also inspired by um, by Newman. And um, in a particular way, actually, this little group, this little community at, at uh, Littlemore, was influenced by by the by the Roman breviary because once they gathered together to lead this kind of community life. They were actually praying the, the Roman breviary, which was another great discovery for Newman, and uh, he really loved it. Did, did the Anglican Church ever um, concede some of the things that he was trying to implement uh, liturgically, where they said, okay, you're kind of right, or, or was there kind of a rejection saying, you know what, we're, we will only go this far? Um, I'm just curious as to that. Uh, during his lifetime, uh, no concessions were made. Uh, later on, yes, uh, later on there was a process of liturgical uh, renewal in the Church of England that uh, integrated a lot of these um, elements, both in the Eucharist and in the daily office. But during his lifetime, um, Newman found a lot of opposition, although he, in his own practice, was actually very restrained, uh, said he, he really wanted to celebrate the Book of um, common prayer to the letter, but also in its spirit, of course, whereas other um, Tractarians, as the members of the Oxford movement were known, and so Friends of Newman went much further and introduced Roman customs um, uh, very, very freely. But even Newman's very careful um, steps uh, were met with um, a lot of criticism in, in his times, so in the 1840s. I love his story because there is such a human element to to this because at the, in the end of the day, we all have to actually make a conscious decision 
as to whether or not we're actually going to follow Christ and make him our life. And in that decision process, there's a lot of suffering because you have to sacrifice a lot to, to 100% say yes to Christ and where he's leading you. And I love this last sentence of your article because uh, I can imagine there was a lot of suffering internally um, with St. John Henry Newman. But this last sentence, you said, once he became Catholic, he truly found peace and serenity even in the midst of severe external trials and his prayerful dedication to the church's divine worship made his priestly life exemplary. I, I love that idea that once he gave everything, once he surrendered and said yes, there was that sense of peace and serenity, which is just so joyful and so amazing. Yes, that is, well, uh, why? Uh, well, he's a saint, really, I think. Uh, <laughs> um, that is one of the reasons why he uh, is, uh, has, been, has been canonized, that despite these great trials, he, I mean, was unshakable in his faith and really kept that inner peace. I mean, it was very hard for him. In fact, um, uh, the hard uh, times really began for him once he became Catholic. He had to give up a lot, that was clear, his position in Oxford in the Church of England. uh, This was a time when Catholicism was really um, seen as a kind of foreign sect uh, that was contrary to the spirit of the age, which was marked by great progress, um, um, industrial expansion, um, advances in science, and so on. Um, um, politically, it was seen as a retrograde move. So, and, and so, so, so really, uh, people couldn't understand why Newman would take such a step. Um, so it was clear that he had to give that up. But uh, once he became a Catholic, he, he actually had to face a lot of trials, hostility, criticism. There was a period when it seemed that Newman could do nothing right. And whatever he did was um, I openly criticized by, by other Catholics or um, sort of behind the scenes, um, intrigues would be launched against him, um, his initiatives would be blocked at every step. So it was a really a period of great trial, but through all these difficult years, uh, sort of the 1850s, 1860s, when he also experienced a lot of failure, it seemed whatever he started doing uh, ended in failure. The Catholic University in Ireland didn't really work. Um, the project of an Oxford oratory um, was uh, was blocked. Um, he even um, was, was asked at some point to revise a, a, the existing English Bible translation, so the Diarem's translation, so um, we, m- we might have had a sort of Newman Bible, but that then, um, that project was then abandoned. So during all these difficult years, he always kept his peace, his um, sort of um, inner, inner happiness, um, although it took a great toll on him, and, and that is something very, very admirable, and certainly um, the, the liturgy, the Mass, uh, this blessed sacrament gave him great strength. What he found so very wonderful about the Catholic Church was the presence of the blessed sacrament in the tabernacle, so that in a house, in a religious house, you have a chapel, you have the blessed sacrament present. He found that an um, incredible source of strength and, and, and of consolation um, to him. And um, so this perseverance, this this patience, also really in in the suffering he endured, is uh, I find something 
truly admirable in him. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Father and Lang, for, for taking time to discuss this. And if you want to read this article, the full article, you can go to www.adoramus.org. Thank you, Father. Thank you very much, Jesse.